Hello, and welcome to Historical True Crime, the podcast where we take a look back at history's darkest crimes and criminals. I'm your host, Lizzie, and today is episode 37. We're going to Australia for, I believe, the first time, and we're going to be in the late 1800s. Today's episode is on Martha Needle. Martha Needle appeared to be a loyal housewife and a loving mother, but she harbored a dark secret. Martha methodically and painstakingly poisoned her entire family a little over a century ago. Drop by deadly drop, one by one, she killed her husband, three daughters, and the brother of her new fiancé, appearing to be loyal to her suffering loved ones as they died by her very hands. But let's go back to the very beginning. On April 9, 1864, Martha Needle was born in South Australia, not far from the tiny rural settlement of Morgan. Seven months before Martha was born, her parents, Joseph Henry Charles and Mary Charles, divorced. Now, when Martha was two years old, her mother would remarry a brutish man, a 39-year-old named Daniel Foran. And according to oldtreasurybuilding.org.au, according to police records, Martha had a violent and abusive childhood. Her parents were alcoholics, and they had convictions for drunkenness, indecent language, and willful damage. Martha's mother was a troubled woman. Later, one of Martha's neighbors would testify that the mother had occasionally beat Martha severely and that Martha had told her that her mother used to tie her up, beat her with a rope, and that she had witnessed Martha being hit with a stick. Worse still was Martha's stepfather. He would be imprisoned in 1876 after molesting Martha, who was only 11 years old. The South Australian advertiser reported on April 4, 1876, that Daniel Foran, who was charged with, in- with indecently assaulting his stepdaughter, Martha Charles, at Adelaide in December 1875, and found guilty, was next brought up for sentence. His honor alluded to the enormity of the crime of which the prisoner had been found guilty, and sentenced him to the full term allowed by the act, two years of hard labor. At the age of 17, Martha would leave and marry Henry Needle, a carpenter who was five years her senior. In order for Henry to find employment, the couple relocated to Sydney, and on November 13, 1882, Mabel Hannah, their first daughter, is born. Elsie, Martha's second child, is born on October 6, 1884, and somewhere around 1885, the couple would depart for Melbourne and eventually settle in Richmond. The couple was comfortably located and well-matched, according to neighbors, and Henry earned a nice income. Mabel Needle, who had just turned three years old, would pass away on February 23, 1885, following a very brief illness. Her upset mother, Martha, described her daughter's condition to the neighborhood doctor as having just seemed to fade. For a while, Mabel had been experiencing fever, vomiting, and stomach cramps. Her death did not come under investigation. Frederick Elsner, the doctor, verified that the three-year-old's death was caused by a congenital brain tumor and respiratory and cardiac bronchitis. And it's after Mabel's death that Martha will receive her very first insurance payout. Martha's marriage seemed to begin to deteriorate after Mabel's death. 
Her husband needed to travel again to Sydney because he was unable to find work close by. There he would spend several months. Later, it was revealed in a newspaper that Martha had started to go out alone at night and earned a reputation for having a flighty disposition fond of company and a weakness for the admiration of the sterner sex. Little changed in their marriage after the birth of their third child in May 1886, and her husband only grew angrier and more envious. He would develop a serious illness in 1889. Once a strong man, his doctor George Hodgson recalls that he was experiencing now extreme vomiting. Also observed as peculiar was his general demeanor. During one visit, the doctor noticed that he ignored some chicken soup and jelly that Martha had given him. He'd become irritated and unwilling to eat when the doctor arrived at the house. When Martha offered food, he would either throw it against the wall or wave it aside. No one at the time knew why. Well, Mrs. Needle's friends who assisted her in the nursing thought it was strange. The dying man would offer no explanation and it was assumed it was only because of his bad temper and irritable nature. It had a disastrous outcome. Since he only ate when outsiders begged him to, he became underfed and eventually died on October 4th, 1889 from subacute hepatitis, enteric fever, and exhaustion due to obstinacy in not taking nourishment, according to the doctor's certificate. In plainer terms, He died from fatigue brought on by malnutrition, liver, and intestinal disease, among other causes. Despite his illnesses, mysterious origins, and abrupt onset, there was no autopsy. Martha, who appeared to take the best possible care of him, wasn't under suspicion. Again, she would be paid out by an insurance company, the second payment and second suspicious death of a loved one. I wish I could tell you that alarm bells started ringing and people noticed a pattern, but they didn't. And only a year after her husband's death, Elsie, only six years old at the time, began to get sick. Later, during Martha's trial, according to oldtreasurybuilding.org.au, Elsie's doctor would vaguely recall that he had initially believed Elsie to have the measles, but that she'd been throwing up and Elsie's appealing mother was the doctor's lone distinct recall. He claimed in front of the jury that Martha had never shown signs of being careless or harsh, nor had she ever interfered with his ability to attend to Elsie. Elsie would endure nearly two months of suffering before finally dying on December 9th, 1890. And four-year-old May's health would similarly decline just seven months after the loss of her older sibling. The previously healthy toddler started to exhibit strange and unsettling symptoms with frequent vomiting standing out. The young child passed away on August 27, 1891. Her doctor later testified that although her death certificate showed tubercular meningitis as the cause of her death, the case attracted his attention particularly. He said he was always puzzled by the case and that he could never arrive at a satisfactory diagnosis. The younger children were laid to rest in a grave with their father in Melbourne's Kew Cemetery with a straightforward metal plaque bearing the inscription, 
Little lips that murmured mama, still and silent, now are they. Tiny feet no longer patter, hushed forever neath the clay. I find that particularly disturbing, especially considering they all died at their mother's hands. According to Ryan for the State Library Victoria blog, Martha again received a 60-pound life insurance payout when her husband died and received the remaining 60 pounds from Elsie's insurance when she passed away shortly after. And when their third daughter May passes away in 1891, Martha's given the remaining insurance money of around 80 pounds. But insurance benefits can only go so far. And Martha ends up living in the Melbourne district of Richmond in 1892 and has to take in boarders to supplement her income. Some sources also say she moves and becomes a housekeeper for a pair of brothers. Despite which one it ended up being, Martha's attention is drawn to one of these brothers, Otto, a carpenter, who she was staying with, or he was staying with her. Uh, His brother Louis was also in the residence. Now, Otto appears to have felt the same way about Martha, and he proposes. She's thrilled, and they start to make wedding plans. However, not everyone approves. Martha just doesn't seem like the right match, in Louis's opinion, for his brother. He considered her temper to be out of control, and in order to prevent the marriage from taking place, he starts making plans for other family members to fly from South Australia to Melbourne. But Louis would become sick on April 25th, 1894, with odd symptoms, including vomiting, aching gums, and a sore tongue. And on April 15th, he'll pass away. Herman, the third brother, will fly to Melbourne to handle his deceased brother's affairs. Herman, too, would fall terribly ill and develop excruciating stomach cramps while staying with Martha, although he quickly will make a full recovery. But at another lunch that Martha had made, he would have a relapse. Herman would seek a nearby doctor, a Dr. Boyd, who treated him for what he believed to be poisoning. Herman's vomit samples are sent for testing, and the results confirm the physician's hypothesis that he had been poisoned. The test will turn up arsenic stained by charcoal, the very same ingredients as the well-known rat poison, rough on rats. And finally, police will be called by this doctor. Soon as Herman recovers, the police will set a trap. As Herman enters Martha's residence for tea, police are hiding outside. Martha is discovered in the very act of offering a cup of tea containing 10 grains of arsenic only shortly after. And in the cabinet, a box of rough on rats is discovered. Police will note the similarities between the murders of Louis, Martha's other husband, and three kids, and request authorization to exhume the graves. Louis's body is swiftly exhumed and three or four grams of arsenic are discovered. Only two are enough to kill, and the bodies of her previous husband, Elsie, and May are also exhumed and arsenic is detected. A forensic investigation reveals that she had used rough on rats, a rodent poison that was marketed as, quote, putting your cat out of work. Apparently, it's the poison of choice for Australian housewives in the late 19th century, because Louisa Collins, the very last woman to be hanged in New South Wales, 
had also used rough on rots on her victims only five years before. Again, according to oldtreasury.org.au, Martha is then detained for attempted murder. Later, this will be escalated to murder for the death of Louis. And Martha's murder trial will begin in September 1894. In an effort to defend his client, her attorney would claim that due to protracted bouts of unconsciousness, Martha was simply not in control of her behavior, and that the killing of her children is essentially out of character for her outward attitude as a loving mother. Otto would end up giving testimony that, quote, I noticed she was subject to fits or faints. They would occur any time. The fits came without warning. She would fall suddenly right down as if she were struck. She would be quite unconscious. But Judge Hodges dismisses the claim of insanity, noting that the law cannot wait while philosophers, physicians, and scientists settle metaphysical problems. Justice must be swift and sure. The jury would conclude that Martha Needle was guilty, and they did not suggest mercy. Marshall Lyle, an attorney for the Victorian chapter of the Howard Association for the Prevention of Crime, wrote to the governor, the Earl of Hopton, a few days after Martha's trial concluded. Martha had engaged in behavior that Lyle acknowledged was utterly revolting and opposed to the natural instincts of women. Children, whom she loved very much and treated affectionately, were murdered by her. He counters, however, that it was only rational to assume that a kind mother who murders her children is insane. According to Lyle, criminal administration in the past had been stained with the burning and killing of thousands of women whom succeeding generations have recognized as insane. Even in Victoria, we are punishing annually in our gavels a much larger number of insane persons than are officially recognized as such. Lyle argued against the Crown's use of incompetent medical men and in favor of proper scientific investigation into Martha's case. The jail doctor's assessment of Martha's sanity, which included a cross-examination into her knowledge of the Ten Commandments of Moses, was disputed by Lyle. He advised avoiding scandals of this nature in the future. The letter was forwarded to the government by Lord Hopton, And Attorney General Isaac responded, As the prisoner was defended by able counsel, and as this petition does not disclose any facts which would show that the woman was insane, I do not see any reason to recommend that the request be complied with. And it's on October 22, 1894, that Martha is hung. According to an article in The Age, published in 1984, Martha responded in a firm but low voice when the sheriff asked if she wanted to make a statement, making herself audible to the few people who were present because of their official obligations. Quote, I have nothing to say. Thank you, sir. The executioner quickly adjusted the rope as she proceeded to the drop center, seemingly without the need for help. In less than two seconds, the lever was pulled, the drop fell, and the final punishment prescribed by the law was carried out. Martha upheld her impenetrable demeanor until the very end, and even though she politely listened to the reverend and clearly appreciated the kind care of Mrs. Hutchinson and Sister Esther, she would maintain her full innocence of the crimes for which she was about to suffer right up until the end. 
and Otto, who had been by her side throughout everything, received all of her possessions. Again, according to a newspaper article published on October 24th, 1894, he was left her estate valued at 25 pounds, and in her final letter to him, Martha wrote, When you receive this, you can think of me as being in a happy home with my loved ones, waiting and watching for you. I know, dear Otto, that you will get ready for that happy meeting with us all. Otto would go on to marry, have six kids, and live a long and prosperous life. He partnered with Loritz Hansen in 1918, and together they would construct some of Melbourne's most recognizable structures, such as the Sun Theatre, the Port Authority Building, the Collingwood Football Club Grandstand, and the National Bank on Collins Street. But the Needle family would continue to make headlines. Three decades after Martha's execution, her nephew is executed by hanging in Adelaide for murdering his wife and three of their seven children with strychnine in the act of a copycat homicide. And in more recent years, Martha's been the subject of a couple of books, including The Secret Act of Poisoning, The True Crimes of Martha Needle, The Richmond Poisoner, by Dr. Samantha Baddams, and Martha Needle, The Spellbinding Story of Australia's Most Infamous Femme Fatale, by Brian Williams. It's interesting because in Badham's book, she re-examines Martha's case and her unique poisoning technique and develops a defense that was previously unavailable to Martha. Martha's only charged and found guilty of the poisoning death of Louis, whose brother Otto was her fiancé. However, the trial went into considerable detail about the horrific facts of the poison deaths and subsequent exhumations of her children and husband. These graphic descriptions are read to the jury, appear in media, and definitely hurt her case. Baddams examines the case's complexity to make sense of an otherwise unfathomable tragedy, while also setting Martha's situation in the perspective of where she resided. The progressive decline in her mental health is shown through a description of her difficult childhood. She was equally ignored and abused by her alcoholic parents. Then she endures years of excruciating headaches and delirium as a result of typhoid fever, while also being the subject of sexual and physical assault. An analysis of her behavior reveals a woman who is prone to fits, auditory and visual hallucinations, and protracted periods of confusion. Badams explores these symptoms in light of contemporary medical mental assessments. An addiction to a widely available mixture of laudanum, morphine, cannabis, and chloroform would have worsened Martha's mental instability. The account of Martha's life and crimes gives light on a 19th century court system that's badly affected by public opinion and in which the press is used to analyze the facts before a case even goes to trial. While the extenuating conditions of poverty, domestic and family abuse, psychiatric, and emotional illness were frequently ignored, much of the material provided in Martha's trial today wouldn't have been allowed. Badham states that the killing of innocent people is obviously abhorrent and awful, but this case is rife with prejudice from the very beginning, leading to Martha's conviction and execution. And with that... We'll wrap up this episode. I think it's really interesting to examine a case that happened in the late 1800s, early 1900s from today's perspective. 
So we're not saying Martha wasn't guilty of the crimes, but were these extenuating circumstances something that should have been considered? We'll leave that up to you. Again, that wraps up this case of the life and crimes of Martha Needle, and we hope that you've enjoyed this episode. If you did, please remember to review, rate, and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you've got any feedback for us or a case suggestion of something you'd like us to cover in an upcoming episode, you can reach us on Instagram at historicaltruecrimepod or by email at historicaltruecrimepod at gmail.com. And we'll see you next week for another dark and notorious case from history. We'll see you then. Mm